0: Alright, wonderful. Uh, If you would, open up your Bibles um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're looking at, this morning, at verses 14 through 17. Um, Or you can just look along in your bulletin. But today we're in our second sermon in a series uh, that is titled simply, New. New. What we'll be doing is looking at how the gospel brings new realities uh, to this world, including to people like you and me. Now, last week, we saw that God can give people a new birth. Um, Today, we look at this passage from 2 Corinthians, in which Paul says that those who are in Christ are now new creations. Oh, to be a new creation in Christ. Uh, Let's read along. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Scripture we see these amazing words. Uh, May we um, not just ponder them from a distance, but may they be planted in our hearts and in our minds. May we be transformed by them in this hour, we pray. Amen. You know, verse 17 gives us one of the most descriptive Uh, expressions of what God has done for us in Christ. It's, It's remarkable, isn't it? Look at it. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, oh, to be in Christ. What a splendid thought. What a splendid reality. A question for you is, are you in Christ? It means that you're united to Christ, that you are connected with Christ, that by virtue of your faith in Christ, Christ has become yours and you have become his. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection become yours. Paul is saying, he's saying, if this reality has come upon you, if if you are in Christ, God has done something miraculous in you. He has made you a new creation. You see, the old has passed away. The old you who used to live for yourself and for your own vainglory has died off. Not that you and I can at times, and unfortunately often do, live selfishly for our own glory. But more importantly now is that the truth is you really truly desire to live a life that honors God and pleases him, don't you? The old you has died off. The new you, filled with the Holy Spirit, has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This morning we're going to study the three verses that lead up to verse 17. And next week we're going to look at the three verses after verse 17. But this morning we're going to investigate how being a new creation causes us to see differently. And in our passage, Paul says that we're to see differently in two areas. First how we see ourselves, and then how we see others. First, how we see ourselves. Love is the greatest of motivators, isn't it? When I fell in love with my wife, Leslie, my love for her caused me to do crazy things (laughs) that showed my devotion for her. She was my waking thought at the dawn. She was my source of delight during the day. And my last thoughts of peace as I lay my head down at night. Love caused me to do all kinds of crazy actions. I used to drive to her house in the middle of the night with tiny little presents and a little note so that in the morning when she woke up and would go to work, she would you know, have a little happy thought for the day and think of me. I once drove to Colorado 20 hours straight just to surprise her. And, well, she was surprised. You can ask her her the story. It's a good one. Love is one of the greatest motivators, isn't it? Perhaps the greatest motivators in our life. What Paul shows us here is that the Christian is one who sees himself or herself as one who is motivated by love of Christ. Paul makes this incredible statement in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Why would Paul say such a thing? Well, the preceding verse gives us a clue. If your Bible's open, look at verse 13. Otherwise, just listen. Paul says, for if we are besides ourselves, right, uh, it is for God. In other words, if we're crazy out of our minds, uh, it is for God's sake. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. See, Paul wants to correct the opinion that's been going around Corinth that Paul is a little bit crazy. See, there's these, these men, these false teachers who came into Corinth and were men, they were flashy and ostentatious. They were successful. Um, they were so-called preachers. These so-called preachers, they promoted themselves. And it seems that they belittled, belittled Paul behind his back. Perhaps they said things like this. Look at Paul. <laughs> If you want to be successful in life, don't pattern your life after him. He's constantly getting locked up in jail. And if he isn't in jail, he's getting flogged or he's being run out of town. And he can't even make a living at what he's doing. When he was with you, Corinthians, he, he was a tent maker of all things. No, Paul is crazy. Don't pattern your life after him. He's one of those zealous born agains whose whole life is consumed with God's glory. Today, people say, you know, it's okay to be religious, but just don't let your faith distract you from what? What's important in life, your family, a good education, a career, fun experiences. Once you have all that, well, then if there's any time left over, perhaps you can devote some of that towards your religious activities. See, those who are alive to Christ live in such a way that people, as they look at their lives, can tend to think that, well, they're a little bit crazy. In 1999, when I told my mother, who isn't a Christian, that I was going to sell my computer business and go into youth ministry full-time, making $42,000 a year, she thought I was crazy. And she still, in many ways, thinks I'm crazy for being a minister. There's times when she'll remind me, you know, Mark, you're such a good salesman. You know, you can always go back into sales, so you can really make a good living for yourself. She just doesn't quite get it. I always remind her, mom, everything's good. Church takes good care of me. I'm well loved and provided for. Everything's good. Why is it that my mom thinks I'm crazy? And why is it that people think that Paul is crazy? And why is it that people would think that you are crazy? It's because they have not experienced the transforming power of the love of Christ in their lives. They haven't experienced the transformation that you have. They haven't had their, their hearts filled with love and joy for what Christ has done for them. Uh, they haven't found that new affection that causes them to say and do things that seem crazy to the watching world. In verse 14, Paul says that, that the love of Christ is now the overall motivation for our new lives. The, Paul says the love of Christ controls us. Now, he's not saying that, that the love of Christ controls us in like a mechanical way, like we're puppets. You know, okay, the love of Christ wants me to go over here, right? Um, no, not at all. What Paul is saying is this. The fact that Christ loves us causes us to do what we do. We want to be led by Christ. We want to go where he wills us to go. We want to do what he would have us do. And just like Jesus was mocked and ridiculed, guess what? So to us. Paul wanted this church in Corinth to grow and to mature in the gospel. Stop looking at the externalities of things. Understand why I live the way I do, says Paul. It's not because I'm crazy. It's because I'm loved in a crazy way by my Savior who lived and died for me. Paul wants his church to mature. See, the more we come to grasp God's love for us in Christ, the more, not less, that we live for Christ. And the more we live for Christ, uh, the more chances are that people will get us wrong. Does that make sense? So let me ask you a question. If you profess to be a Christian, can you look at your life now and see how the love of Christ and your love for him motivates you to live for Christ and for Christ's kingdom? Do you follow after Christ in such a way that people notice and at times perhaps even think maybe you're just a little bit off your rocker? If you can say yes, but like me, wish that our lives were perhaps lived more for Christ and less for ourselves, then Paul points us To where we need to meditate this morning. Paul is so good. Whenever he says, here's what we need to do, what does he do? He points us to the cross. He does so here. Paul takes us to the cross where Christ, in the greatest of love for you, died so that you may live in him. Look at what Paul says in the rest of verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Paul says that Christians have concluded this. What is it? that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And then he says, and he died for all, that all who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When Paul says that one has died for all, who's he speaking of? Well, Christ, of course. The one is Jesus Christ. He died. The pronoun all refers to all who have come to trust In Christ. What Paul is pointing us to here is what? It's Jesus' substitutionary atonement. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died the death that you should have died. So that by trusting in him, his death um, does a real reality in life of all who trust in him. Our sins are placed on Christ and taken away and cleansed. Christ has uh, substituted himself for us. He atones for us. And so, when you look to Christ in humility and in repentance and confess that you need Christ, that you want him to be your substitute, well, then he becomes your substitute. His perfect life becomes yours. His sacrificial death becomes yours. His resurrection becomes yours. Paul says that because one has died for all, what does he say? He says... All have died. Kind of an odd statement. But it's an important one for us to understand. Do you want to grow as a Christian? I'm assuming the answer is yes. Um, Then realize this, that the old you that existed before you trusted in Christ is dead. The old has passed away. That's death language. Behold, the new has come. You are now a new creation. Yes, you continue to do things you wish you didn't. I, too. I'm not excusing myself, nor you. I think we all wish we could live a pure and sinless life. But understand this, that desire that you have to live a life of moral purity and sacrifice and love for God and love for others. This is a telltale sign that you are what? A new creation, See, an unregenerate person just doesn't think that way. But if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. No longer are you shackled to your losing record. God has washed you clean and loves you in Christ. And because God's love for you is not conditioned upon how you live, but rather on how Christ has lived, God's love for you is irrevocable and eternal. Nothing can separate you. From God's love in Christ Jesus. God has pledged to love you forever and ever. So notice this. In verse 14, Paul tells us that Christ died for all. And the result is we have all died too. We need to process this as Christians as we mature. The old person has passed away. We need to know that. But then in verse 15, he says once again that Christ has died. But this time our application is different. Did you notice that? See, in the first instance, he says Christ has died for all so that we would see our old self as having died with him. Then in verse 15, he tells us Christ has died for all so that we would come alive with him. Did you see that? We have died and now we are alive in him. Verse 15 And he died for all, now two things, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is saying two things that result from being alive in Christ. And the first, stated negatively, is that we no longer live selfishly for our own selves. Stated positively is that we might live for him who for our sakes died and was raised. Christian theology teaches us that we are selfish by nature. I know some people don't like to hear that. They think, you know, I have a negative view on people. I just think that we've got a realistic view on our human nature. Uh, But you don't have to read a systematic theology book to come to the conclusion that we're born selfish. If you disagree with me, just just ask yourself this question. Do young children naturally share? (laughs) Or do you have to correct them, and then teach them. See, we're not born natural sharers, but rather selfish. To further prove my point, let me ask you this. If you do come across a kid, a young child who shares something, what typically comes to your mind? Oh, how cute. His parents must be good teachers, right? Now, I love little kids, don't get me wrong. But they demonstrate the biblical truth that all human beings are born with natures that are turned in on ourselves. And this predisposition continues into adulthood. Another important reality is this, that our selfishness cannot be fully eradicated by human moral effort. Yes, you can become less selfish, and that's a good thing. But is this not also true, that even our desire to be less selfish can itself be selfish? (laughs) Right? We don't want to be that selfish person, you know? And so we're like, all right, here you go. You know, we don't want to be viewed by other people as selfish, and that's a selfish motivation. All right, maybe I lost you. Anyway. Paul says that Christ died for us, that we might no longer live selfish, empty lives for our own glory. And then he instructs us in the positive. He says in verse 15, and he died for for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but what live for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christian lives are lived for the sake of Christ, who died for us and was raised for us. Just as Jesus died for our sin, he was raised to new life so that our new lives would be found wrapped up in his. Jesus is alive, my friends. He's on the move. Um, He is active in this world. Though he's not physically present, he rules and reigns on his throne in heaven. And he leads and he guides his people by the Holy Spirit so that we can really live for his sake as we live however many years God gives us on earth. Christian, that's our calling. It's important to have a family. It's, it's important to have a job. I get it. It's important to have some a vacation time. I get it. But ultimately, and the reason why the world thinks we're so crazy, ultimately as Christians, our lives are lived for his sake, not selfishly for our own sake. Now, I say this as one who needs to hear that too. See, until Christ returns, this is the reality of our our hearts. On the one hand, we really want to honor God because we're new creations. But on the other hand, part of that old you and me is still there, lurking, crying out for comfort and, and, and selfish thought. The Christian church in Corinth had doubts about Paul. Paul says the reasons others might think I'm out of my mind is because I love Christ so much that I don't live like most people. Every waking moment, I'm seeking to know Christ more and more, to make him known to others more and more. I follow Christ wherever his spirit leads me. While others seek safe, comfortable lives, I follow Christ into trials and hardships. How about you? The church in Corinth needed to mature. They needed to be reminded that because there are new creations, they are to see themselves in new ways. They have died in Christ. Now they're alive in Christ. Therefore, they, may, they must have new eyes to live in a new way. And so to us. You know, the modern church in America needs to take this to heart. And not just the church in America, but how about Grace Church? How about us? What if Grace Church just lived 10% less for ourselves and 10% more for Christ? Think of the impact. That we would have in the lives of the people around us. Think of the joys that we would experience as we are led by the Holy Spirit into amazing works that God does through us. And yes, think of the people who might just think we're out of our minds. (laughs) There's a reason that our church's motto is Alive in Christ. That's our motto. Because God has made us alive in Christ and now we're being new creations that have been made to live out this new aliveness in Christ. So may we do that together. May we encourage one another. May we challenge one another to live less for self and more for Christ. I think that's a healthy goal. Christ died and came alive so that we might die to self and come alive to Christ and be led by his love. We also see now that this being made as a new creation not only causes us to see ourselves differently and how we live for Christ, but also changes how we see others differently. You know, this our youth group is on a trip right now. Uh, Leslie, my wife, is leading them, and uh, Nate Burns and Melissa Pombo are up there leading them as well. And uh, um, So they're, they're up on this trip. It's called The Great Escape. And every year, our kids go on it. 250 kids from our presbytery go to upstate New York to this uh, this re- Christian retreats. And and every year, there's a really wonderful Christian speaker. And uh, one year, it was me. Uh, well maybe I wasn't so wonderful. And I decided to pull a trick on the campers. Check this out. I let my beard grow out all scruffy. You're laughing. You remember. All right. And I put on this wig that made me look like I was messed up. I mean, I had this... I would dress like a hillbilly, like a swamp logger or something, I don't know. I looked so scary, I was in camo, and um, the first night, it's so cold out of this, outside the auditorium, I was standing out there as all the kids came by, including the leaders, and you should have seen the looks on their faces. When they saw me, they would like avoid me and stuff, and they were just looking like, what the heck's going on here? I'm glad I'm surrounded by lots of people. This guy looks scary. and. Um, There was even one kid who was walking up and he had a steaming hot slice of pizza. And he was walking up. I haven't even taken a bite of it yet. He's walking up and as he's like five feet away from me. I look at him with these hungry eyes and I said, could you share the slice with me? And no joke, he looked at me, took one bite. And dropped it in the trash can and walked on by. Oh my gosh, were they in for a surprise? (laughs) 20 minutes later, with this big ruckus, I stumble up and collapse on stage, and it's there that they find out that this person that everyone avoided like a plague was the distinguished speaker. (laughs) And you know, I'm not one to shy away from calling people out. I... Pointed to the kid and I said, And you wouldn't share your slice of pizza with me. And he was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, I patted him on the back later and said, Hey, it's okay, dude. Uh, it was just cheese only. I like pepperoni. Um, I mentioned that in light, uh, to highlight what Paul's telling us in verse 16. Because we're in a new creation, we must no longer see people with our old eyes. God has given us new eyes to see people the way that Christ sees people. And how does Christ see people? Christ does not just look at the outside. Christ just doesn't focus upon the temporal. No, he sees the whole person from an eternal perspective. And so too must we. Look at verse 16. Paul writes, From now on, Christian, from now on, Therefore, we regard n- no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded even Christ according to the flesh, but we regard him thus no longer. Paul is saying, when you come to see Jesus for who he is, you come to see people through the cross and you start to look at them as the whole person from an eternal perspective instead of our tendency to prejudge people and to lump them into categories and tribes and either affirm them or or berate them. See the stuff that shows up on social media. It's horrendous. It's horrible, the stuff people say. How you see Jesus determines how you see others. Paul says, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, he often is referring to that fallen human nature that that we're born with. Flesh is that old nature that wants nothing to do with God or his holiness. In Galatians, Paul says the flesh fights within the Christian against the Holy Spirit to cause Christians to do things that um, we don't want to do. Flesh is that nature within people that is full of pride. Sinful flesh is the reason people live rebellious lives against God. And it's in our passage here. Paul says that there is a way of regarding others that is according to the flesh. Simply put, this means that we view people from an earthly or worldly perspective. And it's true. I don't know about you, but that tends to be my default way of looking at people. Even after walking with Christ for all these years, do we not tend to prejudge people in superficial ways? We tend to like people who shop where we shop and who value what we value. We like people who affirm our views while we marginalize those who don't conform to our tribe's values or beliefs. We hear that someone voted for Trump and we either consider them a racist or a hero, depending on our own views of President Trump. At dinner parties, we quickly avoid kind of those weird people that you're like, well, I don't think this guy can benefit me in any way, you know. I'm not the only one, right? Okay. Uh, but then you know, we find this. Oh, this guy's this guy's sharp, or he's got a company. Or he's uh, something about her, or they've got a, they've got a you know they've they've got a place down in the Cayman Islands, and they invite people. Maybe we should become friends with them, right? Isn't that kind of how we tend to evaluate people on superficial things? Paul says that we look at people this way. We are looking at them according to the flesh. What does he mean? Why is it important? Remember who Paul was. Paul used to be Saul. Remember that story? He was a hyperzealous Pharisee. Talk about tribes with beliefs who look down on every other tribe. He thought at one time that Jesus was a false Messiah. And so Saul zealously rounded up Christians and had them tried for blasphemy. Some of them being executed for that. He thought he was honoring God. He thought, surely if anyone gets into heaven, it's me and the, and the tribe that I belong to. My religious record's going to earn my way. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, Saul felt vindicated, right? He could point to scripture and Saul says, see, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. And that false Messiah hung on a tree, so he's cursed by God. But then one day Saul was traveling to Damascus to round up some Christians, to return them back for trial. And then the risen Jesus appeared to Saul. And he blinded Saul. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in an instant, Saul, though blind, came to see Christ. And no longer according to the flesh. In an instant, he was a new creation. And Saul became Paul. God gave Paul the eyes to see things from a heavenly perspective. See, understand this. The cross levels the playing field. It matters not whether you're the most obvious sinner or most extreme, devout, moral person. The cross says that everyone is a sinner and worthy of God's judgment and condemnation. It matters not what tribe you belong Trump supporters all need Christ. Hillary supporters all need Christ. It's only the Bernie Sanders supporters who... I'm joking. I'm joking. Until we see Christ no longer according to the flesh, we, come on, listen, we will think that our tribe is exempt from the cross. We're the good ones, we're the faithful ones, we're the tolerant ones, we're the fill in the blank. We're not like those people. The cross says everyone is deserving of judgment. But the cross also declares that everyone and anyone, regardless of background or status, can have redemption in Christ. Understand how this radically changed Paul's understanding and view of others. When he was Saul, he believed that only his select tribe of the Jews would experience God's favor. But now, as Paul, he's able to write in Galatians 3, he's able to write, There is what? Neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. What? There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The cross levels the playing field. And when we, when we look to the cross, it allows us to, to, to stop considering other people according to the flesh. Jesus gave Paul new sight. He is now no longer uh, a prejudger of people's souls. If you want to see people in the most favorable light possible, you need to first bring yourself to the cross. First, see for yourself that you rightly stand condemned for your selfishness, your pridefulness, your faithlessness, fill in the blank, whatever it is. See your need for the cross before you see others. Throw yourself upon Christ who died for you, that you may live. You will then find what? That you are now a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That God has given you new eyes to see everyone through the cross. We begin to see them either as someone who knows not Christ. That's how we're to see people. Okay, this person knows not Christ. Therefore, I need to be loving and merciful and forgiving. Or we look at people and we say, this person does know Christ. Therefore, we need to be loving and merciful <laughs> And forgiving, right? Either way, the the cross gives us eyes of humility that see people no longer from a temporal, earthly perspective, but from a heavenly, um, eternal perspective. Now for some quick applications. All right. Sometimes we have friends or coworkers or family members that are just nice people, like right? they're good people. we say oh, hey it's the salt of the earth, you know um, good people, fun to be around, but we can tend to regard them according to the flesh. we don't think much about the fact that though they are nice, they do not know Christ. somehow we conflate nice with being forgiven and having an eternal future that is rosy and good if Do you have people in your life like that? People who you don't give much thought to regarding the eternal realities that weigh upon them. Take time to reframe how you see them. Begin praying for opportunities to point them towards Christ. Last night, I was out to dinner, and uh, as usual, run into someone I don't know and become friends with them, and uh, so... Started talking to these two guys and one of them says, You know what? I a month and a half ago, I was a Jew and now I'm a Christian. <laughs> and then he tells this story about how he went to church one day and, and God did this miraculous work in him. Um and and he says, You know, I went to my office the other day. He's a in, in finance. He said, I went to my office and a client came to visit and I told them my experience. I couldn't help but tell them. And the client said to me, He goes, he goes, Mike Me and my family, we have been praying for you for 10 years. Talk about, you know, the temptation could be, look at this guy, he's a successful finance guy. He's got his whole life together. Everything's good. You know, we can tend to, he makes makes money for me. You You know, surely things are fine with him. But no, people, Everybody needs to know the Lord, even those who are just good old salt of the earth people. But then there's the other end of the spectrum. Do we not have people around us that we can overlook because they seem so broken, so needy, so messed up, so obnoxious, or so unlike us that we do not want to draw near to them? Oh, we know they're sinners. May we stop seeing people according to the flesh. May we instead see them with new eyes. Eyes which see people from an eternal perspective. Eyes which see people through the cross, which levels the playing field. May we allow the love of Christ to control us and lead us into meaningful relationships for Christ's sake. Because we are new creations in Christ, we must see people differently. All right, so we've seen this morning that this verse 17 brings amazing truth into our life. It changes us uh, how we see things. Next week, we're going to see how it changes our, our calling. But what we've seen this morning is, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. So as we come to the Lord's table, maybe meditate on God's love for us. That though we deserve condemnation in Christ, peace has come to us. May we see ourselves with new eyes. May we see that Christ died so that we would be dead. That old self is gone, has passed away. May we see that Christ has died for all so that all might no longer live selfish, self-absorbed lives, but rather live for the one who died and was raised for us. May we see others with new eyes. May we no longer look at them from an earthly, temporal perspective, but may the cross lower lower the playing field for us as we see them. And may we see past outward appearances so that we may care for people's souls like Jesus would. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that in your power, by your Spirit, you have inscripturated these words uh, for all eternity that your people may know more fully what you have done for us. We are in Christ. We are not the same. Something radical has taken place. The old us, it's, it's dead. May we be dead to that old person. May we instead now be alive in Christ. May this work of your spirit um, take greater and greater effect in our lives as individuals, but even more so in our church, we pray. Amen.